Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Each week we gather to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. I hope something you hear today brings you into that infinite field of possibility. So imagine this. What if our current scientific understanding of evolution was just the tip of the iceberg? What if there's a way to see evolution that could transform not just our understanding of the physical world, but also our most fundamental sense of self-identity? What if that could give us a rational, intellectually informed sense of optimism for the future, and maybe even provide a new source of spiritual insight and inspiration? We are going to explore our spiritual and cultural potential today by looking through the lens of some of science's greatest ideas. So I invite you to take a few deep breaths, bring your awareness into this moment, open your mind, connect with your heart, and settle into your essential self as I introduce our guest, Carter Phipps is an author, journalist, and leading voice in the emerging evolutionary worldview. He's been at the forefront of contemporary spiritual, philosophical, and cultural discourse, and his writings have played a key role in making important new thinking accessible to a wider audience. He is the co-founder of the Institute of Cultural Evolution, a nonprofit social policy institute whose mission is to bring new insights on the evolution of culture to the arena of politics and social policy. Welcome, Carter. Great to be on the show today. Thank you. It is so great to have you here today. And I have to tell you, your book, Evolutionaries, I have it right here in front of me, and it is so highlighted and earmarked that I don't even know to where to begin with our conversation, but I, I love your book. Well, there's so. nothing better to say to an author than a highlighted and earmarked book. Yeah, I, I have no respect for books. I tell you what, I write in them, I highlight them, I earmark them, and, and <laughs> yours is at the top of my pile. It's one of my favorites. But I do have a tradition here on the show, so I'm going to start with our perennial question that kind of helps us set the meme of our conversation into this greater worldview that we're working on. So, Carter, what does all things connected mean to you? Well, I mean, I, I think, uh, God, there's so many things that all things connected means, but I think the, you know, there's the, there's the, the mystic, you know, when we think of mysticism and, and mystics and we think of oneness and unity and we think of all things being connected in some sort of foundational or fundamental oneness. And that's one thing that comes to mind, but, and, and that's a sort of a powerful way to think about unity. But what I think, of more when I think of all things connected, it's more that the way in which the past is connected to the present, which is connected to the future, in the sense that you and I, speaking right now, in some sense, were the expression of this, you know, long developing process of evolution that's sort of, you know, as far as we know, as far as science tells us, has been going on since the Big Bang. There's some way in which you and I are connected back 
through history, through human civilization, through our biological history, all the way back through the history of the planet, through the history of the solar system, through the history of the, to the emergence of galaxies, uh, all the way back to the emergence of the Big Bang in some sense. And we're connected to that future, those future potentials that are unfolding right now. Where is all this going to go? Where is, what, what does the future hold for this planet, for our species, and for the potential of it? So I think of all things connected. I don't just think in terms of all things connected across the planet or across space, but also all things are connected not just through space, but through time. And I think that's what's really extraordinary. Mm. Thank you for that. I think that is an extraordinary response. And I'm, I'm going to expand on that by saying you just did it again. What you did in that response was helping us make a connection between science and spirituality because you, you started with that spirituality response and mysticism and what that really means. But then you really grounded it into science and time and space and, and what that means. So, so thank you for that, which really brings me to this curiosity and I know there's a story in your book uh, about your childhood and and how you got here but I'm curious if you could share with our listeners and our friends out there of how did Carter Phipps get to this place how what is your personal story that brought you to this leading edge this voice of evolutionaries on our planet well I grew up in uh, in Oklahoma, which uh, where I grew up, it's not not a it's not a it was a great place to grow up. First of all, I'll say, and I, I you know I appreciate more and more that the the background I have. A very small town and in in a, in a, in a not a very uh, uh, progressive state and a very conservative state, very religious state. But I, I but I was a great place to grow up. But when I grew up, the the issue of like science and religion was a big issue and. And even, and still is today, when I was on my book tour for evolutionaries and I went back to my, this little town where I grew up in northern Oklahoma and I gave a, a talk at a, a bookstore. I was invited to give a talk at a bookstore, you know, sort of, uh, you know, kind of, I hadn't been back to this town in 25 years or something. And uh, uh, I actually got hate mail from people who said, you know, evolution, evol- we don't believe in evolution. We don't think evolution is real. Uh, people were very upset about it. So that's the kind of, you know, that was part of the environment that I grew up in. And so there was an aspect of that where I grew up very much in a religiously conservative world. But my family was very progressive, and and I grew up fascinated by science. And I'd like to say that Carl Sagan was my first spiritual teacher. And I remember watching, watching Cosmos when I was a young boy and was absolutely fascinated by science. I wanted to be an astrophysicist when I was a young, a young boy. Um, I don't know if that's the dream of every 12-year-old, but it was mine. <laughs> uh, uh, and then I got interested in mysticism and spiritual, spirituality in my, in my teens and my early 20s. And, and, uh, and I went to India, and I, uh, I, I, I visited ashrams in India, and I ended up, um, over the years, uh, studying with an American spiritual teacher for many years. And uh, eventually became uh, the editor of a magazine called What is Enlightenment? And the purpose of that magazine was to ask the big questions about the relationship between spirituality and mysticism and life and culture. And that mag- that, the time on that magazine and the people I worked with uh, was just an extraordinary journey. And I, I you know, it was a, it, we, we were all 
practitioners and uh, spiritual practitioners, and, and, and we were all interested in understanding the latest ideas. Of, uh, and we really discovered that there's a very interesting emerging perspective that I really document in the book about our new understanding of this evolutionary history that we're, that we're part of. You know, it's only over the last couple hundred years that we've realized we're part of this vast evolutionary context. What does that mean? What does it mean from a scientific perspective? What does it mean from a spiritual perspective? What does it mean from a cultural perspective? How is it changing the way we think about everything? The book is about that. And that was a 10-year journey of understanding that and interviewing people and mystics and visionaries and scientists and philosophers. And it was a great journey. And I'm so appreciative that I was able to go on it. Mm. Well, you know, you you speak of this um really this this divide in this bridge like i think you you said there's a line in the sand between science and faith but it's also a bridge that connects us and so I, can you speak more of that because you have interviewed some of the the leading um spiritual teachers scientists i mean you just listed them it goes on and on what are you finding what is what is the potential bridge between science and faith well I think that uh, there are a number of bridges. I mean, I think that the, the bridge I tried to speak to in the book was that, with, you know, uh, you know the, the book presents uh, what I call uh, an evolutionary view of, of an Eastern path, of an Eastern mystical enlightenment path. It presents an evolutionary developmental view of a Christian path. Uh, I interviewed a... a, a and, and I talk about uh, philosophers and mystics and, uh, from the last century who were from all different sort of religious traditions and philosophical traditions who I feel are all contributing to this, under, this, this emerging understanding, uh, what I call, you know, in the book I call an evolutionary worldview. So, um, but evolution is this very kind of interesting thing because for many religious people, evolution is, is kind of the antithesis of, of religion. Because evolution, when it first emerged on the cultural scene with Darwin, was used as a means to, uh, to drive a wedge against theism in the culture, really. It's like, say, see, we have a view of how biology developed and how the human species developed that is non-biblical, that's non-religious, and so right from the start, it was kind of used in the culture war against religion. So for many people, evolution is almost anti-religious. It's almost an atheistic belief system in a way, you know. And it's like the, it's like the, the atheistic uh, bulwark of science or something like that. But what I say in the book is that, okay, that's part of its cultural history. But actually if you go a little deeper into what, an, evolution, an evolutionary view, it's, it's this extraordinary, beautiful thing. And whether you're a scientist and an atheist, or agnostic, or even if you uh, believe in a personal God, or believe in uh, a kind of a deep mystical unity in a more of an Eastern sense, a Buddhistic or Hindu sense, and you, you believe in non-duality, or if you, if you, if you practice those paths, you know, evolution, this kind of context we're part of, this 13.5 billion year cosmic context that we're part of that has somehow, in a kind of a miraculous way that we don't really understand, uh, has sort of led through this process over the 
over the the hundred the, the billions of years and millions of years and over even the last a hundred thousand years has led to you know thinking seeing cognizing conscious human beings that are the expression of an evolutionary process is itself extraordinary to see ourselves in that light to understand ourselves in that context to think about what it means to be human in the context where we are as Julian Huxley famously said evolution become conscious of itself to see ourselves in that light is itself it's it's a, there there's something deeply spiritual about that and you can see that in a theistic sense you can see at, that in an eastern mystical sense you can see it in an agnostic or atheistic sense but it's deeply spiritual i would say mm. Thank you. That that was really beautiful and, and helps all of us to kind of loosen a little bit because when I hear you speaking and, and I hear others, it's it's like the same thing, just coming from different lenses. And so when we're talking about this evolution that really is across all of these boundaries and it really, it, it's something different, you also really talk about how this worldview the kind of vision that we hold about evolution also affects the vision that we hold for our collective future. It really shapes our understanding of who we are today and where we're going in the future. Let's, let's talk about that for a second, Carter. As we look at evolution and we can really integrate what we're saying here today, how does that shape who we are as a culture and where we're going? Well, this is this is an area where I, you know, I think it's really important for me, and where I feel it's one of the most important aspects of what I think of as an evolutionary view. Because when, you know, I, I talk in the book about all these of what I call, you know, evolutionaries, people who are sort of trying to understand this kind of perspective and embracing this kind of perspective. And I always say one of the qualities that I find in those in people is they're very optimistic. There's some there's some and, and I think that's an underappreciated quality in our culture sometimes these days, especially, ironically, in, in progressive culture. Sometimes in, in some, of my, some of the most progressive friends I know of and people who are very committed and in some ways very idealistic, there's a kind of pessimism about that, that, can, that can take hold in the culture. It's, it's as if in our aspiration to reach to our most idealistic narratives of what culture should be, We've forgotten how far we've come, how much development has happened, how much evolution has happened, how much culture has changed and evolved. We've forgotten how far we've come, how much progress we've made. And it is only, I think, through appreciating that and understanding that and appreciating the evolutionary context in that way that we can then kind of stand on the shoulders and see where we need to go forward and how we can go forward and take the next steps forward. You know, that's why this is an, that's why it's evolution, not revolution. You know, in a revolution, we want to, things are so bad, we want to overthrow them and, and then institute some new way of organizing a worldview or organizing society. And I think that's a, that can be a bit of a dangerous, a dangerous, um, dangerous approach. And, and I'm, I'm much more of an evolutionary and believe in, in, in developmental change, evolutionary change. And, uh, and the kind of optimism that grows out of a sense of where we've come. And despite all the problems, and there are many problems, and all the challenges, and there are many challenges, to have that kind of, I think when you appreciate how far we've come, when you appreciate how much 
we've achieved, despite not knowing so much about culture. And God, if you think of how limited and in some ways poor our knowledge has been about human nature and culture and so many things that we're understanding more about these days, but if you think how limited our knowledge has been about those things over the last 5,000 years, when we were kind of struggling so blindly and unconsciously to move forward, you can understand why things have been so messed up at times and why, we, why it has been a struggle. But the more we understand that, the more we appreciate that, how far we've come, you know? And I think that, that gives us a certain kind of optimism. And man, optimism is in, it's in short supply these days. And we don't want to be naive optimists. We don't want to be overconfident optimists or, or blind optimists. But, you know, we want to be, but there's something to be said for really deep, informed optimism. Mm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Carter, what... What then are some of the um, concepts, some of the constructs, when we put things into the perspective of evolution, what are some of those beliefs, understandings, um, I don't even know what to call them at this moment, but that will assist maybe some of our listeners to look at things in a different way that really help us shape individual way of looking at at the world when we can put it into this bigger context what are some of those i know a a lot of a lot of it is about a belief of us being separate from everything and you kind of put that into context for us but what else might you add one of my you know if i if i understand what you're asking i'll I'll try to try to answer that uh in in the best way i can one of my favorite concepts is you know it's like what does this mean in my life you know what does it mean in the way i think about tomorrow and the next day and how, and, and I think, you know, in, in some ways these are, these are, these are like big concepts, foundational ideas. They sort of change the way we relate to lots of things. You know, when you start seeing through this lens and you start thinking about your life and culture and life itself as sort of a process of sort of movement. And you don't, you know, we so often see ourselves as sort of in some kind of very limited and fixed and static and, and unchanging, you know, the nature of our, the self we sometimes think about is so fixed. It's like, it's like, it's, it's the same as it was 10 years ago. It's going to be the same in 10 years and it's going to be the same in a hundred years, you know, and we think of human nature that way and we think of culture that way. And, and that's part of what drives a certain pessimism. You know, we kind of see things in these kind of fixed and static lenses through or through this kind of worldview. And I think what we're learning when we look more deeply at history and we look more deeply at the nature of culture and we look more deeply at our evolutionary past is nothing's actually that fixed or static at all. It can seem like that. And sometimes our minds see things in that way. But actually, things are, are much more fluid and much more cha- you know, ever-changing, ever-developing, ever-evolving you know, in, in, in ways that maybe we don't see in the day-to-day but are actually true if we look over longer time spans. And we appreciate it. We say, oh my God, it didn't seem like things were changing, but actually things are changing more than I realized. When we start to realize it breaks up this, this inner sense of stasis. I, I call it the spell of solidity. You know, this sense that everything is a solid mass that won't move. You know, it's like, and, and when that breaks up, it doesn't just break up outside of us. It almost breaks up inside of us. Like we feel our own, our cell, our own selves are free to also move and develop and change. You know, the self is not this 
you know, it's not this just static, unchanging entity. It's something that is also fluid and, 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 and has the potential to change and develop in all kinds of ways. And when we recognize that, it opens up the future. You know, it opens up the future to new possibilities in all kinds of ways. And so whether we're talking about human psychology or we're talking about an area of life like politics that can seem so, oh my God, so problematic and difficult and stuck, you know, but when we start thinking in this way, we, then we start thinking about, no, even there, and we, we start looking to how is our things moving forward? How can we step into that river and move it forward a little bit, a little bit further? Mm. Thank you for that. You know, just even that example and moving it into the micro from the macro as well of us looking at not only culture, but even breaking up our own cells. I just, I did a post this morning on social media and was talking about, you know, I have several clients who've asked, well, okay, is this, you know, divinely orchestrated where we trust the universe and trust, trust something outside of ourselves or are we in charge and we're creative? And, and it's like this new and both peace. And even when you were just speaking, Carter, I was feeling that same um, empowerment that we can give people that, that we get to go along with this impulse of evolution and be very awake and, and create with it. So I, I love the potential that you're talking about. Yeah, it's the recognition of our, you know, one of the, I think, powerful elements of recognizing this kind of deeper evolutionary dynamic at work in the universe, at work in biology, at work in culture, um, is recognizing that there's a creative nature to what it means to be human that, you know, in some sense we probably always knew to some degree or in certain areas, but I think we're discovering that it's more important uh, than we knew and more fundamental to what it means to be human, that capacity to reshape our future, our individual future, our cultural future. You know, that's not a capacity that most animals have in that kind of way. And so that makes us part of what makes us human. And, and I think, you know, even the idea of creativity as a, as a thing to be studied as such an important element of human nature and human culture, you don't see that really coming into vogue until the 19th century, which is very interesting because it's after the period of time when we begin to discover that, you know, when evolutionary ideas first begin to filter through culture. And so even historically, in some sense, that's new to think of ourselves as being these kind of creative participants in the culture around us. And I think that's really important. I think when we see ourselves that way, it's very empowering and very liberating and and it doesn't in any way uh, distract, it shouldn't distract us from the real problems that are there or, or, you know, or, or it, it doesn't have to, you know, deliver us into some kind of naive idealism where we're not dealing with the actual problems that were of culture. I'm not, I don't mean that at all, but I mean this deeper sense of possibility and creativity and empowerment and relationship to one's own life and culture itself. Yeah. And, you know, this is a really big conversation and maybe after our break, we can pick it back up with even the the idea that it, it doesn't have to be the antithesis to religion as, as well. It's like this co-creative relationship with the divine or this impulse of evolution that we're working on. We just have a few minutes before our break, Carter, and I really want to make sure that 
our listeners know how to find you. And I know you have an individual website, but you're also a part of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And I want to make sure they know how to find you there as well. Can you give us those websites or contact information? Yeah, they can certainly find me. At, my website is carterphipps.com, and, or they can look up the book, which is Evolutionaries. Uh, and they can find that on my website or on Amazon. Um, and then the, the Institute is the institute where I'm applying um, uh, with my uh, a couple of uh, co-founders and partners uh, these ideas to the political realm. And it's called the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And the website is culturalevolution.org. Uh, so people are welcome to go check out the work we're doing. Uh, both, and we can talk more about it, but it's on work on the left and on the right. We're doing work on both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, I love that about your voice is you're just holding the field for the whole, uh, for the right, for the left, for the center. And you do that with the politics and you're doing that with religion and you're doing that with so many things. And that's what makes your voice so potent right now is we really need to hear what, what this really is. So after the break, maybe we can go into more of what is the Institute for Cultural Evolution, as well as, as some of these other creative um, and innovative ideas that are coming from science and moving us in culture. So I just want to remind our listeners again, we're going to take a quick break, but we're talking with Carter Phipps, and you can find him at carterphipps.com, and that's P-H-I- P-P-S, there's two P's at the end, and also culturalevolution.org. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health problems? Share your story. Four years ago, I went through something that was very difficult for me. I was faced with a very big challenge at a young age. I didn't want to tell my parents. I, I really didn't want to tell anybody, and I didn't. I shut down. And that's not a burden that any young person should have to carry at all. I, once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. This is Terry Williams, co-founder of the Stay Strong Foundation. It's time for us to wake up, stand up, and speak up. Together we can do this. Search online for stories that heal. We must share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. Look, up in the sky. It's just a leaf. Not just any leaf. It's the Smartway Leaf from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The Smartway Leaf? Yes, the Smartway Leaf. Look, it's green and blue and white, and you'll be seeing a lot of them on cars and trucks. We're going to be seeing a leaf on cars and trucks. Why? Well, the Smartway Leaf tells you what cars and trucks are certified as better for the environment and can save you money on fuel. A talking leaf? No, it's a logo leaf. You know, leaf, the environment. Why not an acorn? A leaf is better than an acorn. 
An acorn is pretty good. It says environment. You can squirrel away acorns to symbolize saving money. Well, the leaf works better with a tagline. America is turning over a new leaf for the environment. Well, far be it for me to stand in the way of a good tagline. Smartway leaves will be raining down all over the country. Yeah, you wouldn't want acorns raining down on people's heads. That would hurt. Right, so look for the Smartway leaf. It's the smart way to save money and the environment. Go to www.epa.gov slash smartway. I like the leaf. Sassy! Sassy! This week's episode, Rattlesnake at the Pond. Oh, Johnny, skipping rocks at the pond sure is fun. Hey, look, a moving stick. That ain't a stick. That's a rattlesnake. Sassy, we're in danger. Good idea, Sassy. Go get Mr. Gunderson. You will in a second, but first you'd like to tell us something we may not know about animal shelters in the United States? It's getting close, Sassy. Approximately 8 million pets enter shelters each year? The majority of which are in shelters because of owner-related issues that the animals have no control over? Sassy's a rattlesnake! Save us, Sassy! What, Sassy? You wish you were videotaping this? Sassy! Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt! Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. We're talking with Carter Phipps. If you're inspired by our conversation today and want to share it with others or maybe just listen to it again, please visit our website, thedrjulieshow.com, where you'll find the archive link and also listing for upcoming guests. Also, stay connected all week on our Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. And once again, we are here with Carter Phipps. You can find him at carterphipps.com and also culturalevolution.org. Carter, one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is helping us put these concepts into a perspective and then not just think about it, but really you're assisting us to move forward with cultural change. And, And that's how I see the Institute for Cultural Evolution. But why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners and friends what is the Institute for Cultural Evolution and, and what are we working on there? Yeah, so one of the areas that my, my found, uh, co-founder, Steve McIntosh, who's another author in this field, um, we wanted to, we felt uh, these ideas, evolutionary ideas I'm talking about, and, and also I didn't mention this before, but another area that is where some of these ideas have sort of formed around a, a new type of philosophical movement called integral philosophy. Um, so uh, a lot of these ideas have to do with how culture develops and the nature of cultural change and uh, the relationship of the individual to, to culture. And, and so a lot of issues in that. So we thought, well, they, they, they have powerful application and, and they really change the way we think about religious matters and spiritual matters. They have a big impact on those matters, as I, as I write about my book. But another area is in culture. They have a big impact the way we think about politics. And culture, and you know, politics is such an expression of culture in many ways. And uh, so we wanted to, we we spent a long time thinking about and talking about and discussing and sort of researching the political uh, side of, of, of these evolutionary ideas. And eventually we started a think tank to really apply it. And uh, in particular, you know, the 
one area where we see the, the culture having such a dramatic impact on politics is around the nature of partisanship. And if you look in the country today, you know, we're, we're, this is a very hyper-partisan time. We're, we're one of the most partisan time periods in the last century. Many people say since maybe the 19th century, since the, since the 19th century time around the Civil War. Now, I'm not saying we're about to go into a civil war or anything like that, but it's definitely one of the most partisan times. And, and it's cultural dynamics that are driving that. Uh, we are in a period where, you know, many people look back to the post-war period and they say, well, that was a time where we had this kind of grand consensus and li- this liberal consensus. And even though we had real political disagreements, we were able to get a lot done and government was able to function. And we, we disagreed, but we did it in a more respectful way. Whereas now, uh, that's not true at all. You know, evolution, one of the dynamics of evolution is it sort of moves through periods of convergence and periods of divergence. And we're, we're culturally in America now in a period of divergence in which people are further apart. And we have worldviews that are more uh, isolated from each other, more separated from each other in, in many ways. So we thought, well, this is a big, huge challenge for the culture. And it's an area where we might be able to have an impact and work on work on. And so we, we, we dedicated part of the resources of the Institute for Cultural Evolution to working on uh, cultural polarization and political polarization and dysfunctional governance and how do we have an impact on the progressive left and the conservative right, how to think about the left and right. What's the, what's the anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. That's the, that's the idea, how to have an impact on the, the cultural and political dynamics around political polarization. Talk about taking on a difficult issue. <laughs> I know I'm shaking my head going, okay, this one, you know, that wouldn't be my natural place to land and go, yes, this is a good day. That is a tough, tough calling for you guys. So, so let's kind of land that and ground it into this worldview and, and evolution because what brings us together is the shifting of of our consciousness and our understanding. So how do we have an impact on the far right and the far left with this worldview of evolution and, and really cultural change and political change? Well, one of the things we have to realize and I, is that we are more, we are, we are more separated now and we are more polarized and our goal is not to get us all to be the same. You know, we are, we, we, there are many worldviews uh, inhabiting American political electorate right now, and they're not all going to converge into one. We're not going to change everyone to agree. We're not, you know, that's not the goal, uh, at least in the short, that's certainly not the goal in the short term, and who knows what's going to happen in the long, long term. But, but um, we are in a more, more polarized state, and can we begin to move our culture toward a state of sort of normal polarization, not hyper-partisan polarization? That's part of the goal, and, and the way we think about that is... Is, there's a concept, I didn't mention it earlier, but there's a concept in evolutionary thinking called, uh, it's a great concept, I think your listeners will love it, will like it, it's called the adjacent possible. And I know, it, it, I'll just explain it briefly. It, it means, what are the possibilities of the, in the future that are adjacent to where I am right now, or where this system is right now, or where culture is right now? What is adjacent to me? So, I'm a, uh, so if... If I look at my own, uh, I, you know, what's possible for me in the near future? So 
So for me, uh, lifting, uh, bench pressing 500 pounds is not in my adjacent possible. That's not a possibility that is adjacent to my, where I am right now. Bench pressing maybe, I don't know, 200 pounds might be my near, my near term adjacent possible. So, so one of the things an evolutionary does is they think a lot about what's, what's the adjacent possible. What's the next step for culture, for myself, for this group, this organization I'm part of? Part of being an evolutionary is you kind of live in that shadow future, that possible future. What's, what's the next possible step? And so what we try to do is apply that to the left and the right. And in some sense, how is the left moving forward? What does cultural change tell us about where the left is now and where it's going to be in five or ten years? And where would we like it? Where, how, do, how, how can we help to, to kind of, you, you can't control these things, but maybe you can just nudge them a little bit. You know, how can we nudge that forward? How can we envision a future of the left that fits with where culture is headed and is sort of adjacent to where culture is now and that is less hyper-polarized and hyper-partisan? And how can we imagine a future of the right that in the adjacent possible? That's that's a little bit less hyper-partisan and hyper-polarized. How can we, what can we do to help bring that forward, to help sort of both anticipate it and sort of nudge it forward? Um, and so we've been doing that on the left and the right. So, uh, you know, anyway, I'll, I'll, I, uh, I've probably spoken too long, but that's kind of the idea, envisioning a future of the left and a future of the right that's less hyper-partisan. I like that. And I like how you talk about that adjacent possible because everyone can see themselves where they're at in a few steps ahead exactly. or in a different direction. So I really appreciate that. So exactly. when it's you very talk about the way to think about what being an evolutionary means. Yeah. And it's powerful. There's so much potential right there. So who's the, who does the Institute serve? Are you're not focusing on, necessarily the political realm as far as, as I, I, maybe I should just ask, is it politics? Is it, is it politicians or is it the general public? Who are you serving? Well, we're serving, um, we're, we're, I mean, hopefully we're serving culture in some larger sense. I mean, we're a think tank uh, in, in, in some ways in the traditional sense, like, a, you know, embodying a whole set of ideas and perspectives that we think can have an impact on politics in a very positive, uh, productive way. Um, you know, in a certain way, you know, representing evolutionary ideas and integral philosophy that I mentioned in the think tank in ways that we hope we can have an impact uh, and get these ideas out there and, and, ho- and let them have the impact that we hope they can have. You know, not that different than maybe, uh, you know, like the Cato Institute represents libertarian thinking in certain ways, or the Brookings Institute represents, uh, you know, sort of long-term sort of general liberal thinking, or the American Enterprise Institute in Washington represents sort of conservative thinking. You know, we're trying to have an institute that sort of embodies the political perspectives that are derived out of this new way of thinking about culture. And so what we're doing, we've been doing over the last couple of years, is hosting conclaves and hosting gatherings of high-level sort of influential people in the political realm who are also interested in working on these issues. And we've done it, we've done it with left and right together, uh, scholars and political scientists and politicians from left and right together, and then we've done it on the right as well. And we're planning, uh, we're, you know, we're still in the midst of this, we're, we're planning to host a future of the left gathering next year. 
uh, we had a future of the right gathering this year. And so also looking at the polarization on the right as well, for example, because a lot of, you know, there's, there's, we think of polarization between left and right, but there's a lot of dynamics between on the right that are also driving difficult, hyper-partisan and polarized issues on, on the right between, for example, very conservative, the, the, the religious right and the more moderate Republicans, the more libertarian Republicans. Those are big tensions. And so talking about those things, seeing how we might be able, what perspective we might be able to bring to them, how you create a right-leaning party that really represents a more the future aspirations of a whole bunch of people that maybe is not left, but that is more functional for and more helpful for the society than maybe the obstructionist right that we have today. Mm. You know, I, I love the strategy and I love um, even just an ordinary person listening today can go on that website, take a little quiz, see how they feel, play around on that side, explore a little bit and really look within um, you know, if, if politics is, is a hot button for you and your passion, go there and explore it. And yet, you have Carter, to depolarize just, ourselves first, right? We have to kind yeah. of be aware of our own polarization, the way we get, we get over partisan. It's so easy to fall into that. Yes, exactly. And I love that little. I, um, I only have to read my Facebook feed to see that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all my, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, that's funny. So, so yeah, so I'm encouraging our listeners to check out culturalevolution.org. But I also want to expand this now, Carter, because yeah. you really help us create a positive worldview. You have this optimism. And, you know, on the planet right now, not just our political realm, but, but so many institutions are breaking down healthcare, education, religion, finance, our media. There's so many shifts and changes that are dramatic. Talk about evolution. We're watching things break down and evolve right before our eyes. So in saying that, we have a lot of evolutionaries that are listening. A lot of our listeners are, are, are right in alignment with this conversation today. So what are some of these characteristics of, of evolutionaries and how do we, how do we take those steps in whatever realm or whatever passion or whatever projects that, that might inspire us? Mm. What can they do? Well, I want to uh, address what you said just the first, then I'll try to respond to that. I mean, I think, we want to be a little cautious, and this is where I probably break with some, maybe some of your guests. Um, I mean, I, you know, sometimes we can sort of fetishize the idea that things are breaking down. You know, it's kind of a, you know, there's a certain type of progressive worldview in it, that, that, that likes to imagine that things are always about to break down and that the dominant order is about to be overthrown and, and the result is going to be peace and love and harmony. And uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Yes, yeah. But, that there's a there's a kind of way in which that narrative I hear it so often and I don't and I just want to be clear that that's not what I'm suggesting when I'm talking about that kind that's to me that's not evolution in the way I mean it and it's not I don't think in 2012 or in whatever the latest date is that there's going to be uh, some sort of you know a birth of a new of a of a, of a kind of a new consciousness that's going to take over the planet in some dramatic way. Now, obviously, dramatic things are happening. On we are in a global time of this global, uh, you know, 
globalization and all kinds of things are happening on the planet that are dramatic and are it's a time of change and, and change seems to be speeding up so in that sense i very much agree that we are there's and there, and that thing it will it includes a lot of very positive things it includes a lot of negative things you know one of the nat- one of the principles of cultural evolution is that the, you know as as you evolve and as you have new ways of thinking about as new worldviews evolve they have they have really important positives but they don't solve all the problems. You know, then you have you create tremendous new problems. So you know, the industrial revolution and the Western Enlightenment created all this. Created a middle class. You know, we never had a middle class in the world before, like we do today. And that created all kinds of opportunities. Education for the masses. I mean, just there's so many things you could talk about. The wealth of the middle class is this incredible breakthrough of the last couple hundred years. We've never had that in history before, right? But we have new problems too, right? We have climate change and, you know, uh, massive amounts of poverty and we have all these other issues that we still have to deal with. So, so you know, even though we have new breakthroughs in cultural evolution, often those breakthroughs can create their own problems, you know, the environmental problems that we have to deal with as a result of our economic breakthroughs, for example. So it's always this give and take with cultural evolution and that's important to understand. So in terms of what you said, in terms of just kind of to bring it down practically, I mean... I think my current favorite way for people to really think about what these ideas mean in their own life is kind of what I said. You know, it's like, well, on one hand, I think in terms of the adjacent possible, I mean, there's the big picture. It's always good for us to kind of contemplate just the big picture of evolution, even briefly, you know, just to think about that, you know, human consciousness and culture and our cognition is this kind of extraordinary uh, sort of, you know, moment in this trajectory of billions of years. I mean, it's kind of amazing to think that we have, we are built by those billions of years of evolution, millions of years of evolution, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. And the fact that we're able to understand that and reflect on that, very few humans, almost none, in except in the last, you know, couple hundred years. And, you know, these very few periods of time. I mean, this is a brief period of time in history where people have understood this. We just, I say it's like, it's like waking up while we're driving down the road, you know, with our eyes closed and our hands on the steering wheel and we're having all these crashes and we don't know what's going on. And suddenly we start to wake up and open our eyes and realize we're, where we've come from and what we're part of a little, just a little bit. And, and, and maybe just barely like where we're headed. But you know, just barely. You know, it's like we got one eye just barely fluttering open, and we and we wonder why we're still having a lot of wrecks. You know, of course we're having a lot of wrecks. We're barely understanding where we've come from and where we're headed forward. So, you know, we have to appreciate the nature of our moment. But there's something extraordinary about appreciating nature of kind of a a billion year process of biological and cultural and cosmological evolution happening in your mind, looking out through your eyes. That's extraordinary. And then when we think about how to bring that down and think about, the, you know, there's something about an evolutionary view that helps us, that kind of perspective, you know. It, 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 it puts everything in context, first of all. But it also, you know, it also helps us to think about, it, it breaks up this idea that we're just, you know, we're just, everything is kind of stuck, you know. And it helps us think about the future in new ways. It, it kind of, it liberates our, our some energy Creativity and a sense that we're connected to something larger than ourselves, and a process that's way beyond ourselves. 
that and that we are directly engaged in that, even in our own small micro ways. We we are connected to that larger context and larger process. And and when we think about our own lives and our own contribution, you know, I I, I think the adjacent possible is a great concept because it keeps it starts to put our attention, you know, they talk in the spiritual world so much about putting our attention in the present moment. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. That can be a very positive thing to do in certain contexts, in certain ways, and it can be liberating in its own way. But I like putting our attention on that adjacent possible because it, it puts our attention on that possible future, that pos- those possible areas where we can move into, the possible new things and new creative opportunities that where our life and our, our, ourselves find their future expression. And so to me, you know, putting our attention on the present moment is one thing, but putting our attention on the adjacent possible is, is you get that spark of evolutionary potential and evolutionary optimism. Uh, and that's what's exciting about, about that. And that's where I think it kind of comes home to rest in our lives and what we're doing today and what we're doing. Yeah, the thing that I appreciated about what you said earlier was the adjacent possible with like your weightlifting goal and bringing that in to our personal lives, our personal health, our, our vocation, our relationships, our communities, and really looking at what is that adjacent possible for me right now. And, and instead of looking so big picture of what we maybe want or desire beginning to work with that adjacent moves us toward a future that's yeah. very different. It's empowering. It's empowering. It's doable. It's, it's practical. It's not high in the sky. You know, sometimes I have friends who are very idealistic, and I, I, I like that. I appreciate that quality, you know. But sometimes a, there's a certain type of idealism that sort of masks a certain type of pessimism. And pessimism, you know... It, Something that's too idealistic can easily become very pessimistic quickly when it when it doesn't reach its goals, and we sometimes can flip between a certain type of pessimism and a certain type of naive idealism. And and what I love about the adjacent possible, and it kind of hits that sweet spot in between. We're realistic and practical with ourselves, with what we're capable of, and yet we're moving forward. There's that sense of the future, of potential and possibility, not blind you know, sort of crazy idealistic possibilities, practical, next steps, incremental, but real and down to earth. Mm. I, I hear your practical um, voice and, and your grounding there with the optimism, but I'm going to ask you to just be idealistic for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to challenge you, Carter. What is your positive worldview? What do you see for a future for us and our culture? And I know you're really grounded with a lot of, of good thinkers and you're doing this think tank. What is your, what is your positive worldview? What's your dream? In what time frame are you, do you mean? Well, pick one. I'm just curious in the next maybe decade or two, what do you see evolving and happening? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, uh, you know, Ray Kurzweil, who's a technological pioneer, he works for Google, actually, he's director of engineering now. Um, he, I, I interview him in the book, and he has this great line that I like. He says, you know, people often overestimate what's possible in the short term and underestimate what's possible in the long term. 
And I do think that's a little bit true in a sense. And so, you know, I'm a bit circumspect about what's possible in the short term in the sense that we have lots of issues and lots of problems, and I don't want to overstate how fast I think things can can change, even politically. I think a lot of the work that we're doing politically, and I try to, we try to keep it as grounded and real and practical as we can, and, but I still think, realistically, it's going to bear fruit in, in, a, de- in a decade or more. You know, it's like we're trying to plant those seeds that are going to take a year or two or maybe five or ten, fifteen to bear fruit. And mm-hmm. that's part of what it means. That's okay. I mean, that's important. Sometimes that's the way change works. It doesn't always work suddenly or really fast, you know, as we found out with Obama. You know, every, people were so excited and everything was going to change. Well, the change doesn't work like that. But... Culturally, I mean, my hope is over the long run. I mean, I feel like globally, you know, it's like we have the opportunity to, we have this kind of fascinating dual opportunity as a culture and as a global civilization, is to sort of take all the advantages of a modern economy and grow it globally such that people are lifted out of poverty and we create this kind of global middle class close the significant developmental gaps between the, between, across the world, you know, between the, east, the north and the south, and to some extent, those are a lot further along in closing. We close a lot of those gaps, and since we become this global, this truly global civilization without these huge developmental gaps that we have. And simultaneously, we begin to kind of reinvent our economic structures and our energy sources and our energy structures and the way that allows us to mitigate some of the damage that we've done over the last century by that and that we didn't realize we were doing, but now we're starting to realize with climate change, with, with, with you know, new types of clean energy, that we begin to, to reinvent the nature of our economic engine in such a way that it becomes sustainable, that kind of growth, that kind of becomes sustainable over the long term. So we have the chance to do those two things. We, just, we can't just do one or the other because neither are enough. But we have a chance to do those two things. And what an extraordinary legacy to give, you know, to, get, to begin to create a world over the next century that, has those two, that, that brings together those two elements. And then the future is extraordinarily bright for what's possible for our civilization. I mean, I, you know, I, the, the sky's the limit. But those seem to me the kind of the, the tremendous twin challenges of the next. Mm. Carter, you have articulated really a, a beautiful path for us. If we could just focus on those twin challenges and the adjacent possible. So brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that with, with me and our listeners today. And thank you for being with us. Um, wow. What a, what a fascinating conversation. Well, great. What a, what a joy to be with you, and uh, thanks so much. Yeah, so if, we, if you had one last um, message to leave with our listeners, we just have a, a minute or two left, what might that be? Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't have, I, uh, I think I've... <laughs> you already uh, shared all your brilliance. I think I've shared everything. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot more, but I, I, I feel like I've, I've said a lot, and... Uh, and, uh, you know, I hope that, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, sometimes these, these ideas can, I, I hope we've made these ideas kind of practical and down to earth enough, but without losing how big and vast some of these concepts are. And, you know, that's not a thing to shy away from. That's, that's a thing to let ourselves be inspired by. But at the same time, you know, 
with the Institute and with other things, we, we also want to bring it down to our own lives and to what we're doing tomorrow and the next day, but without losing some of that sense of awe at just the nature of what we're part of. And we have to keep a little bit of that through, through our lives, even as we have everything we got to do and, and mm. our, our family, everything we have to do in life. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, Carter Phipps. We've been talking with Carter Phipps, the author of Evolutionaries and co-founder of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And you can find more about Carter on his websites, either carterphipps.com or culturalevolution.org. And of course, you can always connect with me on my website, juliecrell.com. And thank you for listening to get today. Together, we are creating greater connectivity, and that's always a good thing for the greater good of the whole. Until next time, I'm wishing you conscious love. Bye for now.